What's going on, podcasting world? And welcome to episode 98 of the Core Consult RX podcast. Oh, see that? I messed up my intro already. Unbelievable. Today with me is my good buddy Abdul from work. Uh, he's taking the place of Cole. Cole's having to, to work during this COVID 19 epidemic or pandemic, excuse me. But um, so he's at work right now and, uh, and Abdul's sitting in for him. So, um, Abdul, it's good to have you here, man. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'll let the people hear a little bit about what your background is and because you have a very unique skill set when it comes to helping patients um, overcome certain addictions and things. So what is your, your role? Well, on, on paper, it says that I'm a certified addiction counselor, um, which means I get to work with people who are trying to stop using drugs or trying to stay stopped. And I'm also a licensed master social worker working on getting my... Um, independent clinical licensure so I can do psychotherapy on my own. That's awesome. So yeah. how, how did you get started in that? Have you always wanted to go this route when you were, you know, going through high school and all that or how'd that work? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, I kind of ended up working in behavioral health, social services in about 2011. Um, I had been laid off from a job that I had in a whole different other life. And um, there was a community center, like an outpatient behavioral health center right in my neighborhood. It was walking distance. Uh, I, one of the guys who worked there was a neighbor, and uh, I met him randomly. And he's like, oh, yeah, we're hiring. So I went down and applied, and they hired me because I guess they needed people. And um, I realized that I was really good, really good at it. I thought I would be really nervous working around people, mental illness, you know, people coming home from prison. But it worked pretty well. Um, in D.C., I guess it's probably like that in most of the rest of the country, you kind of need some credentials to move up. Otherwise, you're just going to be stuck doing the hardest, uh, most thankless and least paid part of the work. So I went and uh, took a course on like counseling, addiction, human development, got a certificate. It was a prep course to take the national CAC exam to become a certified addiction counselor. So I did that. And then a few years after that, um, I applied to a social work program and finished that actually this summer. So it took me a little while. And here I am. That's awesome. Yeah. So do you work with adults and children or just adults right now? Or? No, mostly adults. I've almost I've never worked with children. Every now and then you get like an 18 or 19 year old. But most of my work has been with adults. Okay. So how does it kind of work? Like, do, do you have and, and, you know, do you get a referral to you from their behavior like their psychiatrist or whatever that once they find out that they're you know using an illicit substance um or what how does that work and then also too like what kind of you know substances are patients using that you see is it you know just opioids or is it you know what kind of stuff do you see typically right so generally um the referral comes from the primary provider uh once they find out that the person is using now i'm not really sure sometimes they whether they ask the people if they actually want to stop using or not, because I've called to follow up on referrals and been told, you know, I didn't ask for that. Um, but for the most part, I've worked with people who want to stop using or who have already stopped and are working on maintaining uh, sobriety. Um, and I'm new to South Carolina. I just moved here last summer in August. So I'm seeing a lot more heroin use down here. DC, it depended on, I'm from DC originally, depended on the age. So 60 and over is more likely to be heroin. Uh, in their 40s, PCP, and then the younger kids were smoking K2. Some people call that fake weed. Um, I'm not really sure. Isn't that like spice or something like that? Yeah, spice, Scooby Snacks, K2. They have all kinds of names for it. But it's the stuff you can get at the gas station. It's sold as like poopourri, but you can smoke it. So is that, I guess that's addictive then? I've never, uh, I, I don't know much about spice other than I remember kids in high school talking about it. Yeah, I've never tried it either, but um, I figure if it's sold as potpourri, it's probably not to be smoked, especially, you know, um, and I think it's a generational thing. Yeah. But I've, I've seen the videos on YouTube and I've heard the stories anecdotally from my clients, you know, so one, one of them I remember telling me that there was a park in Southeast D.C. Southeast is like the really like poorest, most uh, depressed, disenfranchised part of D.C. And there's a park there where you can go there in the middle of the day and it's just like these k2 zombies people just laid out on the street you know just not on the street but i mean on the ground just mm -hmm. flat out knocked out interesting mm -hmm. so how like when you are first interacting with a patient like that do you, and it's fun if you got a cough or whatever you don't worry about it it's just the uh it's it just our podcast is not a big deal we don't edit <laughs> 
I um, want to be professional for the people. Nah, know? that's all good. <laughs> I take this stuff seriously. Believe me, they're used to us not being uh, all that super professional. But I do, I do like that you take it seriously. Um, so the, uh, you know, as far as the patients you're interacting with, do you feel like the majority of the ones that are, you know, are they pretty open to? you know, like counseling and, and changing their, you know, certain habits that have like led them down this path. Cause I, I know one of the things that threw me off, I guess, I, in, like most people, I kind of had like this, at least, you know, image and stigma of what I expected someone like addicted to opioids, let's say. And then when I went into, um, and went and worked for Jen's, um, cousin that owns the opioid treatment center mm-hmm. and, um, was doing like methadone and suboxone dosing and stuff for a little bit when I was uh, in pharmacy school. Um, one of the things I was like, surprised about was the people that were coming in looked you know there's guys in suits that were going in there were like executives at a certain place that had an injury and gotten themselves hooked on opioids because of the pain meds they were given originally they looked i mean you know you had some people that looked the the, the quote-unquote part right that we right. you know stigmatize about but like a lot of the people the majority of people looked completely normal like you'd never guess they had an issue they weren't like picking their face off and like <laughs> you know laying in a pool of their own urine or some kind of crazy thing like that and it's like i realized I was like, oh shoot i've had this like stigma about these people my like for a while i guess just you know from what you see on tv and stuff and it's like that's not at all what these people are like um do you find like a lot of people that like on the surface level would be surprised about that they have addictions like that absolutely i mean in, in my the, the place, last place i worked at in dc was a rehab it was they had an inpatient um 30-day program and then i worked on the outpatient side and and you really see all kinds of people coming through um i think that for a long time people had these ideas about what drugs quote-unquote drugs did to people heroin uh cocaine you know smokable cocaine uh crack um, and I think a lot of what people would see was mental illness and poverty. So, you know, that sort of, um, diminished ability to take care of yourself, right? Like we're talking about poor hygiene, just sort of letting yourself go. You, you know, when I, when I was working with, in the community outpatient mental health center, I saw people who looked the part. Um, except it was for mental illness and being homeless or being poor or sleeping rough, and not all of them were using drugs. And so I think a lot of what we see are these sort of co-occurring disorder cases where, you know, people have trouble, you know, for having a safe place to sleep or, or bathe or they don't have access to the right food. And so when you meet people who have, whose other basic needs are otherwise met and they happen to have a drug problem, you and you know they, they they appear different from from the expectation. I think there's a tendency in our society to look at sort of like the worst of the worst. In other words, the people who are the worst off, and then extrapolate from that and say, well, this is why you know this is what happens when you start smoking cocaine or you start shooting heroin. But in reality, like you said, um, especially living in D.C., you know the joke was that. Um, DC, and I guess it's probably true of other parts of the country too, but you know, there are parts of DC that just run on cocaine because, mm-hmm. you know, people are super type A driven. And I'm sure if you were to run into one of those people, they would look very different from, say, uh, someone who was coming to see you and living in a shelter. I heard a, um, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because um, I heard a talk given one time, I think it was like a TED talk or something possibly, but they were talking about the origin of like residencies, like medical residencies and mm-hmm. like, you know, because usually residents have to work a ridiculous amount of hours, especially depending on the residency. Like, um, I think uh, like surgeons and things, they, they could work 120 hours a week in some cases, even though they're only supposed to technically work 80. Um, but apparently that, and again, this is a story I've heard, so I haven't actually done my... You haven't done the di- research? Done digital diligence <laughs> research, but the source came, would seem pretty credible. So I'll, I'll go ahead and at least tell the story. Just don't quote me on this. Um, but it looked like, uh, and I don't even remember his name, but the surgeon that had uh, started kind of like the idea, like the idea of a residency program where his residents would follow his lead. Mm-hmm. He had like this reputation of being able to stay awake for like three days at a time and just like these crazy hours he could put in and he wanted his like 
his residence to go toe to toe with them. And then it mm. came out later on that he had he had done he'd been doing like PhD type work along with his uh, you know clinical studies, working with cocaine as an anesthetic and became addicted to it. <laughs> <laughs> and so these poor guys were uh, were trying to keep up with him. And he's like, "Come on, guys, we can do it. Let's do a little bit more." <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. I I, I was like, "Oh, there's got to be cocaine or crystal meth at the end of this story somehow." <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's interesting to see how uh, the stimulants. I that doesn't surprise me. Like everything from the medical world to um, you know, Wall Street to all that stuff. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of music industry, yeah. Hollywood. I think you know a lot of creative types. Yeah, it's it's and uh, you know, sleep does. And I would agree, unfortunately, with them as far as sleep does seem like an inconvenience at a lot of times. However, yeah, when you got things to do, you yeah. know, sleep is just kind of a pain. You know, if like you do without it. That's you know, when I was in my CAC class, uh, one of my classmates who used to be a dentist and then lost his license because I think you know he decided you know he tried to be like recreationally uh, he tried to convert his office his practice into like a recreational pcp lab and i think he ended up getting in a lot of trouble and losing his license but he said a buddy of his who was a neurosurgeon uh liked to smoke cocaine before going into surgery because it helped him concentrate Ooh. yeah i know right hopefully you never end up under his knife but i feel or, like or maybe maybe it'll work great for him who knows who knows that's right yeah that's that's definitely pretty sketchy yeah so um not exact cocaine smokable cocaine is not exactly a performance enhance. oh smokable cocaine is not exactly a performance enhancing substance yeah for sure um that's interesting geez and he's a sir could you like that's so much time of your life spent training and learning and then that seems like a sketchy way to lose your license that sucks yeah um so you know, kind of walk us through the process. What is like your first interact when you're first interacting with someone, you know, the very first appointment they have with you, are you more just kind of like trying to build rapport with them, trying to get a history of like what kind of led them this way? Cause we, we talked, you know, um, off, you know, the record at work, you know, we were just trying, we were just chit chatting about stuff and you were telling me like, you know, the, the difference between someone starting the medication or, or the illicit drugs, like in, as a youth versus as an adult can be very different outcomes and things like that. Um, so how do you kind of like start the process? Does it start with that like history or family history of what's going on? Yeah, usually I try to ask people what's going on um, in addition to the substance use. And it really depends on the person. You know, some people have a lot of insight and they'll say, oh, you know, they'll say things that are consistent, like a lot of research, which basically says that a lot of people who are addicted, who are struggling with um, substance abuse, um, have never felt comfortable in their own skin. So, you know, you meet someone who has that insight and they'll say, I cannot remember a time where I felt comfortable or I felt okay. And I only felt okay when I was high or when I was drinking or whatever. Um, but one of the things that I find, and this is actually why I hesitate. I don't like to talk as much about drugs or drug use because I think I, I think of the drug use as a symptom of a deeper emotional disturbance, and the addiction, of course, is a consequence of the chronic use. But usually, I'll talk to people and try to figure out who they are, where they're from, what happened. One of the questions I always ask is, "How old were you the first time you used X or Y, and who were you with?" Um, because sometimes you'll hear somebody say, oh, yeah, you know, everyone in my family drank and I just used to, you know, either get drunk with the elders or like I started sneaking alcohol from my dad's liquor cabinet when I was like nine. Um, and of course, that's helpful to me when I decide how to approach their treatment, because like like you said earlier, um, the age at first use is going to affect, it's going to have a big role on the course of their uh, disease progression, but also the course of their treatment. It's just a lot harder for people who have been using substances before their brains were fully, in other words, while their brains were still developing in childhood and adolescence to give it up at any other point. It's possible. It just takes a little bit more work. So, you know, I guess what, what's kind of going on there? So someone starts off at a younger age. Like, why is that... Um, you know, more of a problem, I guess, to get them off of it later on versus somebody who's been established and then decides to try it for whatever reason. Right. I think, and, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert in brain development or human development by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but the basic idea is that uh, frontal lobe development is the last to, to happen, like the prefrontal cortex. That's a part of the brain that we traditionally associate with uh, higher order thinking, um, delayed gratification, future orientation, in other words, the ability to plan for the future. It's just not fully developed in kids. 
um, and in teenagers. Uh, most of the research now says that that process doesn't end until late, mid to late 20s to early 30s. And then if you add in like environmental factors like people's lived experience, trauma, adversity, hardship, that timeline can be pushed back. Um, and so a lot of the time when you're meeting, when I'm working with people who have been using drugs or alcohol since a very young age, 12, 13, 9 in some cases, there's usually things going on at home, mm -hmm. right? Like in a normal, quote unquote, healthy, nurturing, supportive home environment, children will neither need nor have access to those substances. And there's, a, again, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on as far as brain development that I don't know if we can go into, partly because I'm not an expert on it. But the basic idea is that when a person is developing from birth, childhood, adolescence, there's a set of things that should happen. In other words, there are certain experiences and environmental supports that they need. And then there are certain things that should not happen. And we're talking about adversity. We're talking about trauma, abandonment, betrayal. And most of us don't get the perfect balance of each. We just hope for more of the good things and less of the not good things. And one of the things that, you know, the kids in common who end up starting drugs early have is that they got way more of the not good things than the good things. And then if you add in substances, it becomes this sort of chronic self-soothing behavior, comfort-seeking and of course, uh, it's unfortunate because it's just the way our brains work. These substances that are most soothing are also incredibly addictive because they tap into, you know, the brain's pleasure center, dopamine, the pleasure and reward center. And so, you know, this is the stuff that's linked to our very basic survival, like eating, like food, sex. And so once the substance uh, is introduced, you're able to achieve rates of pleasure that you can't normally there's no natural activity that's going to match a cocaine high or a heroin high or being drunk that's one thing i've always found kind of fascinating is these these drugs that you know like cocaine for instance you know can make you reach these levels that you feel this euphoria or this like you said feeling of pleasure that is not normally reachable and yet can also like wreak havoc on the body in some cases. It's just, I've always found that kind of just crazy that like there's, you know, I guess we're only like supposed to biologically feel a certain level of pleasure in that case. It's kind of odd. I don't know. That's just a random thought I just had. Yeah, it's almost like our brains were designed by Puritans, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> there you go. Like too much fun, too much pleasure is a bad thing. I, I, you know, there's, there's this thing, um, you, you know, homeostasis, just a big term for like balance. And mm -hmm. I guess like, you know, it, it, it's something that your body naturally biologically strives for in terms of sleep versus exercise or exertion in terms of nutrients, in terms of water, like our brains are always striving for some sense of balance. Um, from what I understand, part of the reason uh, certain drugs, especially the, the ones that induce euphoria, crystal meth, cocaine, heroin, um, are so hard to get off because your brain is also constantly seeking homeostasis. So the first time you get high, your brain releases dopamine and, and identifies that as a pleasurable activity because pleasure, that feeling of pleasure is how your brain identifies vital survival activities such as eating or sex, which is essential for the, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the species pro, procreating uh, for future generations. When... You introduce a substance like cocaine, heroin, crystal meth. Your brain says, oh, okay, that felt nice the first time. And then if you do it again, your brain begins to catch on. Your brain sort of has internally knows that there's way more dopamine being produced or being released. And so your brain begins to sort of dial back the actual amount of dopamine in your brain which is sort of the beginnings, the precursor of tolerance. And so people will be like, oh, all right, I just need to use more. Like, you know, the same amount of cocaine or crystal meth just didn't do it for me the second time. And so they keep increasing the amount of the substance that they ingest. And then your brain continues to dial back the amount of dopamine that's available. The other thing that your brain starts to do is it says, well, if, if this person is now regularly um, stimulating this amount of dopamine, the brain will progressively proportionally reduce the amount of dopamine that's available and 
The second thing it does as a way to sort of like regain homeostasis is it begins to shut down receptor sites inside itself. So it begins to take offline dopamine receptors. So even if the continued use continues to stimulate certain amounts of dopamine to be released, there's nowhere for them to bind to. So your ability to experience this pleasure is actually now diminished. And which is why I first probably heard the saying that, you know, nothing compares to the first high because your brain is fundamentally changed each time. Hmm. And the thing is, when, when people are first trying out recovery, no, nothing will naturally um, give you that experience. And so a lot of the time people say, I'm depressed, I'm miserable, and it just takes, you know, it's just hard work. But if you're dealing with somebody who's been getting high since they were a kid or a teenager, they've never, their brain has never existed without that artificial stimulation. Hmm. So, I mean, how do you ever get back to the baseline then? I mean, because that seems, I mean, that seems like for any human being alive, that if you've existed in this reality, that is a heightened state of pleasure, a heightened state of euphoria, to come back to the hardships of real life seems like that's a hard thing to sell somebody. It sucks. Yeah, it's really hard. And that's why I don't try to sell that to people, because you have to find something else. Like they have to have something else that matters. And so people will say things like, you know, I, I don't want to die on the street or I want to do something else with my life. Because the truth is, if if you are a committed, you know, let's say 20 year heroin user, cocaine user, there's some sort of internal. Again, it depends on each individual person's level of insight, but there's always some internal metric that you say, you know, like I look around me, I see people I went to high school with, I see friends of mine. And they are doing X, Y, or Z with their lives, and I'm not, right? But to tell someone, you, in other words, I've never attempted to help to work with anyone who was trying to quit for no reason other than because drugs, drugs are bad. Every drug user, every drug addict I've ever met knows that drugs are bad. That's not, they don't do drugs because they think drugs are not bad. Mm -hmm. They do drugs because drugs are incredibly addictive and because most of them have never experienced a level of pleasure that is matched by what they feel when they get high. So the goal is to find something else. Um, one of the things that I found that in my groups that was really helpful was to help people to distinguish between pleasure and happiness, right? Happiness is linked to serotonin. Dopamine is linked to pleasure. And for a lot of people, they, you know, you always hear this, well, I, you know, you hear the anecdote about the drug user, the womanizer, the party girl, and you know, none of the pleasure, no amount of pleasure in the world is enough to make them happy, right? It's kind of like, I have all this stuff, why am I not happy? And so being able to explain to people that, that happiness is not pleasure. In fact, the two can almost never exist at the same time. Mm -hmm. Dopamine and dopamine is a short acting um, neurotransmitter that is not supposed to be f flooding your brain at all time, whereas do uh, serotonin is. And so as serotonin levels drop, uh, people begin to feel depressed. But as uh, when dopamine is secreted, serotonin levels naturally drop. One, pre one takes precedence over the other. So you can never be both experiencing pleasure and happiness at the same time. And from that sort of standpoint, it's a little bit easier. Again, it all depends on the individual person. You know, um, people have to have something else that matters to them more than just being high all the time. That's interesting. I've actually never heard it explained like that. That was uh, very... Interesting, because I've never thought about it in those terms, as far as like neurotransmitters being the de defining factor between pleasure and happiness like that. But that does make sense. So what you're saying basically is like the happiness is the baseline of the, you know, just overall feeling of like being fulfilled in your life, kind of, so to speak. And then the pleasure, like little of the spikes you get um, at certain points. Right. But you always come back down to the baseline, which as long as your baseline is on point then there's nothing wrong with having those spikes as long as you understand those are fleeting and they're not going to be how you feel all the time. Right. Hmm. That's interesting. I've never, good. Well, well done, Abdul. I'm learning. Well, just talking to you. Yeah. Thanks. I, no, that's awesome. Um, there's a guy who wrote a book and I forget his name, but the title of the book, the subtitle is the hacking of the American mind. And he basically breaks it down in those terms, which helped me understand it as well. But it also helped a lot of my clients understand it because for a lot of people, like, again, imagine, and, and again, I'm using like some of the more extreme cases that I've seen, but imagine someone who, who's growing up in a home where things are less than ideal, right? Folks always fighting or there's abuse, neglect, whatever. 
this person has never even had an opportunity to feel happiness, but at the same time, they've never had a chance to pursue their own happiness. In other words, they're still dependent on the adults in their lives. When this person first encounters a drug high or the first time they have sex or they experience a good relationship, they feel those rushes of, of pleasure, of euphoria, and they mistake them for happiness, right? So even if you, most of the people I've ever worked with, I'm not going to, you know, I know it's not scientific to use words like all or the vast majority, right. but yeah, I would say I the overwhelming number of people, they are not okay in any area of their life. It's just that the drug use or the addiction or the behaviors that surround the drug use and the addiction are the most obvious and least socially acceptable. You know, if you talk to somebody who's been struggling with drugs or alcohol, you soon discover they have trouble managing money, their relationships are bad, they either date people who are toxic or they are themselves toxic to their partners, you know. And so, again, to what I said earlier, I look at the, the drug use and, of course, the addiction as a consequence of the drug use, but I see those as symptoms of a deeper emotional disturbance. That's what I really try to get to when I'm working with people. What's making you so unhappy, so unhappy that you cannot even stand to be not high because your, your baseline state is just misery. You can't stand it. That's why you're getting high. It's kind of like an escape button. It's mm -hmm. kind of like I use the analogy of uh, drug use as changing the channel. It's like a remote control. You can change the color. You can turn the colors up or down. You can make things brighter or darker. You can turn the volume up or down. Sometimes you can turn the TV off, you know, like people like people who get blackout drunk and they can't remember what happened you got and I always like well what is it what is it that, that is so unpleasant when you're not drunk or high so when you're like working with people like that do they um do you have to talk to them about the like their friends and family that are surrounding them that potentially are also using like how do you do you encourage them to kind of have to uh, like get a new circle of friends around them or how does that work because I mean I feel like that would be hard if you're trying to quit and the people around you are constantly encouraging you to go back to it it is it's hard it's incredibly difficult because even people who are in the depths of uh, chemical dependency they have a community of their own right and again going back to the sort of like hypothetical child who's grown up with adversity and you know the your drug use is part of your community right that all your friends are users and in cases like this, it is incredibly difficult. Um, it also depends on the stage of a person's recovery, right? And so in your typical inpatient or outpatient, you're going to meet people in there who it's like their first time trying recovery. Others maybe had maintained periods of sobriety and then they relapsed and checked themselves right back in. And it really depends on where the person is. But you're absolutely correct. It's like the um, it, this... Uh, philosophy comes out of a Native American recovery movement called Wellbriety, and it's the idea of the the healthy, uh, the the sick, the sick forest. So you take a sick tree out of a sick forest, you heal the tree, and the tree recovers. What happens to the tree when you put it back into that sick forest? And these are one of you know this is one of the things that I struggle with all the time because, like I said earlier. Um, poverty, social isolation, social um, economic marginalization makes everything I do, I try to do with patients incredibly hard. Uh, if you're working with a middle class, college educated professional who maybe they're able to hold a job, and in fact, it's having these other things that makes them motivated to, to enter treatment and, and persist in treatment because they have something they don't want to lose. Um, if you're thinking of someone who's, you know, like your quote unquote stereotypical skid row addict or, you know, quote unquote drunk, it's very difficult to ask someone who's literally living at the very bottom of our society to stop using drugs. You know, I, when I was working, when I first started doing this work, I had a client who, you know, she'd had a horrific history. Uh, all the stuff that's not supposed to happen happened to her. She was uh, sexually abused by her grandfather, uh, I think like her mom's dad, and then her dad found out and he beat the guy half to death and then he went to prison. So now this little girl has not only been sexually abused, but she's lost the one person who really gave a shit about her to prison. And so when I met her, she was already an adult in her 50s. She had done sex work. She was still smoking cocaine, but she didn't look, quote unquote, like what you would have expected someone to have had that life to look like. And then I realized something in talking to her because, you know, she would 
she was clean, she had good hygiene, she'd put on makeup, she had a pleasant demeanor. You would never know that this was somebody who had been through all those things. And I realized, oh my God, what if this woman does not have a drug problem? What if she has a drug solution? And the more I talked to people, the more I started to realize, holy shit, there are people out there who the drugs is all that's keeping them going right now. You know, it's what gets them out of bed in the morning. It's what gets them to go out and do whatever they need to do to make money. And it's what, you know, that's how they, that's how they keep going. And I realized that like drugs can both be the glue that holds you together when the whole world is falling apart for you, but they can also be the glue that gets you stuck when the world is no longer falling apart, right? And in that case, drugs are like no different from anything else, right? It's, it's not the drugs, it's the person. Like we, I try to address people where they are mm-hmm. and try to recognize what's going on with them. And I always say, you know, even as we're sitting here talking right now, somebody out there is shooting heroin, somebody out there is smoking cocaine, and their life is not falling apart because of the drug, because they have other things going for them. But like I said at the beginning, when we think about drug use and we think about people who are addicted to drugs, we often think about people who they don't have a lot else going on in their lives. And of course, you're going to see the stories of the people who lose everything and all of that. But I, don't, I think those are more sort of like... Um, the ones that make good news. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, in that case then, I mean... If there's people out there that are using it to like get through their work day and stuff like that, I mean, is there patients that you work with that you're almost like, if they stop using it, you're worried about them going into like a state of depression and things like that? Like that is just like the escapism, just like some people binge watch Netflix? Or is it just because of the overall harm that it can do? You, we just, we still have to just replace it with something else. Right. I mean, to be clear, the cases that I've seen at my current job, which is where you and I work, are somewhat different from the cases that I've seen in my previous work um, in, in D.C. Yeah, 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 Most of the people who came to work to where I worked in D.C. wanted to stop. Okay, so they're actively seeking treatment. Yes, they were gotcha. actively seeking treatment and or they had already stopped and were just needing support um, to help them support their recovery. A lot of the people I'm seeing here in, in, in this more sort of like uh, primary care setting are using... And some of them want to quit, but I haven't encountered very many who are willing to do the work, Mm. right? I think it's sort of like if you think about those stages of change, they're more in that sort of like Mm pre-contemplation, denial or contemplation where it's kind of like, I'm kind of thinking I shouldn't be using drugs, especially when my doctor is telling me that it's affecting my heart disease or my diabetes or my blood pressure, um, my circulation, but I don't know yet how to stop. Or I might have tried to stop before, but I couldn't stay stopped. Gotcha. So, um, you know, as far as like getting people off of the medication, do you have you worked in the past like with, um, you know, a psychiatrist that's prescribing medication for that to help? Or have you been uh, more so on the side of trying to use whether it's CBT or some other form of, um, you know, Psychotherapy. Psychotherapy in order to actually, you know, get them to fill those voids somewhere else and and fix it with therapy. Have you done both? I have done both, but most of my work um, has been on on the latter end, just uh, with uh, talk therapy. Um, I had a client who was actively using uh, heroin, um, and I helped him get on Suboxone, and that made a big difference for him. Um, again, I think you and I talked about this in the office, the 12-step uh, AANA people are not too keen on uh, any kind of medication-assisted therapy. They, they say you're either, you know, a drug is a drug is a drug. I don't agree with that. I come from a more harm reduction approach. And so if, um, if it's a difference between methadone which, or suboxone, which are given in controlled doses uh, versus shooting up and accidentally overdosing because somebody thought they could save money and cut their heroin with fentanyl. I mean, it's a pretty clear, clear choice for me. Um, and so I do, I do bring uh, a lot of that harm reduction um, to the work I do with the patients, but I do also try to talk to them and understand what they want. Because one of the things that I learned is I don't want to ignore the fact that for a lot of people, drugs are really all that's keeping them going. Right. It's the only thing that they've that's ever made them feel safe or comfortable or 
or frankly not feel all the awful feelings they must be feeling the rest of the time when they're not on them. And it's very difficult to ask someone. And so I tend to take the sort of like whole person approach. Yes, there might have been points in your life when cocaine got you through some tough times. But now cocaine is hardening your arteries and you have high, uh, heart disease and you have high blood pressure and you have erectile dysfunction, which actually was a conversation I had with a guy who had never heard that cocaine and um, you know, hardening of the arteries had anything to do with, with one another, right? Or that you know, your blood flow circulation had anything to do with whether or not you could get an erection. So a lot of it, again, depending on where the person is, what, what stage of change they're at, Sometimes it's just giving them information, give them a flyer and be like, hey, look, this is what cocaine does for your erectile dysfunction or this is what cocaine does for your heart disease and letting them learn something new and decide. The erectile dysfunction is one I even use for my diabetes patients, so especially when you're when you're talking dude to dude. Right, it's an easy sell. It pretty much it's it, it, <laughs> no dude. Nobody wants to be. You know, I've never right. met a guy who is like ah, super pumped about it. I could take it or leave it. Right? My, you know, <laughs> I can take my erection or leave it. You know? we, we've uh, I've even had like my female students like if I'm with a student or to leave the room, I'm like, all right. Man to man. Right. This is why I'm, let's help you get your blood sugar in control for this reason. That's they're, like, right. they're like, wait a minute, that's the cause. <laughs> if you want your junk to keep working the way you think your junk should work. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so, you know, as far as the medications go, um, you said that the, the, the one gentleman that you had worked with, they got on Suboxone, you saw that it helped him a lot. How was it like helping him in regards to? staying sober from the medication or how did his demeanor change what was the change that you like well, I, saw? Think, I think it was across the board i mean you know when he would come in after having you know snorted a couple of bumps and he would kind of be dozing in in the group um that he was more alert he was more awake he was more present he kind of was less irritable and he also you know it depends on the person he would openly say how he was feeling you know mm-hmm. it's again if if your primary focus is harm reduction as opposed to you know some perfect standard of uh, abstinence or sobriety, you know it, you could tell someone to leave your group, but it may be the last time you see them. Right. Your yeah, group may be the last place or the only place where they feel safe and accepted or where they can feel like they're really trying. And again, I. I I mean, it's hard to say, but my preference is to try to focus on the person, even though I understand that like their substance, their drug addiction is a big part of their story. It's not all of who they are. And so a lot of the work is to try to find who they want to be or who they used to be before the drugs took over. You know, it's it's hard work and I'm not going to pretend like everybody I talk to quits or stays quit. um, But we have to try. Yeah. And so, so as far as the, the medications they typically use, you know, buprenorphine is one that you see a lot. And that's used in combination with naloxone a lot of times. Right. So That's what's in Suboxone, right? Suboxone, yes. yeah. And so one of the things that kind of throws people off is the naloxone component because that's a mu um, receptor antagonist. So it's kind of like if you were to actually give someone, you know, let's say they overdosed on an opioid of some kind of oxycodone, they took a whole bunch of oxycodone or something. If you give naloxone like Narcan, the brand like the injection um, or the nasal mist or whatever, then you can basically it knocks that opioid off the mu receptor and it replaces it and so right. the person comes back. That's the one that's used to reverse an overdose. Right. And What's, so when you see naloxone in with buprenorphine, it seems like a little counterintuitive. Like, why would you give something? That yeah, has that why kind of, would you do that? And so they, the naloxone is in the actual suboxone tablets or, or you know films or whatever it is um, for the sole purpose of being there if the person tries to dissolve the formulation mm-hmm. and actually inject it. So it only gets activated if you were to like break down that tablet or something in the way you're not supposed to and then try to inject it. Then it's going to be active and actually shut that buprenorphine off and so buprenorphine is a what they call a partial mu opioid agonist so being a partial agonist like that you're going to get a little bit of the like biological response that you would when you have a a um you know some sort of it whether it's endogenous or exogenous um you know opioid uh, binding to that opioid receptor you get a chemical response or a biological response and so 
with oxycodone, you get a much higher level of this like dopamine release and things like that. If I use buprenorphine to bind to it, it's a partial agonist. So I'm going to get a little bit of that, but it also protects the person where it's not necessarily giving them the euphoric effect. Mm -hmm. Not that it can't, but in most cases it doesn't. Um, not that it gives you the euphoric effect, but it, it blocks those, those opioid receptors so that you're not having like withdrawal symptoms and all the negative, um, like kickback as well. Cause if someone just cuts out opioids, cold turkey, right. and then you're going to feel miserable. terrible. Right. <laughs> so this is like a way to eliminate that. So it's, it, it helps in that sense of kind of keeping them from feeling those negative effects that's what's in naltrexone right so that's what's in the suboxone because it's a combination okay. buprenorphine and naltrexone or, or i'm sorry um naloxone now naltrexone um works very similar um to that it's a different you know chemical makeup and you'll see that a lot in like um uh alcohol withdrawal as well they'll use that but they do use it in opioid um use as well um same kind of thing you're basically just kind of blocking that that feedback system of um um uh, what do you call it the like the pleasure system, you're right. blocking that system from happening so that it's not causing any kind of, um, or not to the same extent, those pleasure releases that you get from the, the drug itself. Um, the data doesn't, in my opinion, doesn't seem as effective with naltrexone versus using like buprenorphine or even methadone. Um, but it definitely, there's, there's definitely evidence that it does help for sure. Um, I've, I know we've used it a little bit in like alcohol, um, used to sort like we're getting people off of alcohol that is that what's in vivitrol vivitrol is, i think uh, that's the brand name for it yeah the that's, injection no I, vivitrol is the um i take that back i think vivitrol is the uh long acting injection because at my last place of work they had just started piloting that for both uh opioids and alcohol when i was leaving but i never got to work with anybody who was on it um but i sat in on all the trainings and it said that it helps with cravings it is the brand name for um for naltrexone yeah yeah you're right um though the because i am shots every four weeks i had to double check myself the um so yeah it's just it's the brand name that it goes under um and then methadone kind of the same thing with using it to kind of in in, in opioid use disorder you're using it for the same kind of purpose as far as like getting those Oh, those mu receptors stimulated, but not to the extent that you would if you were giving opioids all day long and you know taking them around the clock. And so you're you're doing it in a more controlled environment. Methadone, especially um, when someone's first going through the program, they have to go to a methadone clinic, get dosed, you know, take the dose in front of usually the pharmacist, and then go from there. But um, one of the things that I think is interesting is I've had a lot of people say that oh, if this person's been on Suboxone for three years, like. You know, you've just substituted one for the other, just like the the folks say. Um, <laughs> yeah, the twelve steppers. Yeah. And uh, the like, drug oh, is the drug is the drug. Yeah. So, oh, you know, that doctor's you know just taking him for his money and being sketchy and things like that. Um, I had a physician that works in that area tell me one time, you know, because I've brought that up to him just to get his opinion, right? Because I never really knew one way or the other, like what the you know true reasoning was. And he said, for him personally, you know, I'm, of course, I'm sure there's people out there that are. So, subscribing or prescribing them not in a good way but he said for him he goes there's some people that he's met that just seem to have like this genetic predisposition mm -hmm. to drug mm -hmm. addiction mm -hmm. he said you know their full family is um they just the second they come off of treatment they go right back to yeah. the heroin or whatever it is mm -hmm. and he said that he goes i have a hard time even though he goes i've taken flack for keeping people on you know these these things but he's like i you know i feel very comfortable in a clinical setting having control over the dose and all that and to keep these people at least safe and part of society versus letting them you know go off on their own because from a from a patient standpoint that's they could potentially overdose so like you were saying absolutely earlier, yeah you know they cut their hair with fentanyl and that's that right. they're, they're dead and uh he's like and it's also from a public health standpoint mm -hmm. he goes who do you think is going to pay that bill when they go to the emergency you know right people or or when they break your window, well, I guess nobody steals stereos anymore, but you know, whatever social, you know, ill happens as a result of another person's addiction, we all pay the price for it. Yeah. You know? I think, and I think that's the first time I kind of clicked for me of like that. Cause, cause I've heard a lot of people saying, you know, they get annoyed with, Oh, well that's just, you know, encouraging people to use drugs as if like somehow if we keep them from getting, you know, clean needles or right. something like that, that we are doing them a service versus like a public health 
situation. Well, also because it's worked so well, right? Because, right. Because letting people die from AIDS or heroin overdoses or hepatitis C has worked so well for the last 50, 60 years. Yeah, they just stop right away as soon right. as they find out they As soon can't. as they find out, it's like, oh my God, heroin is addictive and I could potentially overdose. I guess I should stop. Right. Yeah, that, that doesn't work very well, unfortunately, so if I, only. Yeah, I, I think that was the first time it clicked for me in that sense is, you know, if you do see these people that are on it for years and stuff, it's to jump to the conclusion that, oh, that's just their doctor being sketchy is, um, in my opinion, now very short-sighted and, you know, a little, little judgy. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I mean, one of the other things that I noticed, I think it's it's always going to be a problem. Um, the co-occurrence rates between diagnosable mental illness, you know, we're talking like DSM-5 stuff and uh, substance use disorders is in some cases, I think one study I saw was like 90 something percent. Mm-hmm. And certainly in my very limited and unscientific experience, I'd say it's 100 percent. Like I said, I've never met anyone who was otherwise okay, except they were addicted to a substance. It, you know, or, you know, because the, the definition of, of basically, you know, substance use disorder is a is a sort of maladaptive pattern of use that, you know, con- you know, continues despite adverse consequences in other areas of the person's life. And so, by definition, you're not going to find anybody who's doing great in every area, except they just happen to like to drink too much, or they just like happen to like, you know, shooting heroin. Mm-hmm. If it's not affecting other areas of your life, it doesn't rise to the level of a substance use disorder by definition. Yeah. I would like to see a lot more treatment of those underlying mental illnesses. I really think that, you know, psychotherapy and um, just, you know, even if it's pharmacological treatment of depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, because those are some of the conditions that co-occur most frequently with substance use disorders. I mean, I really think that's where the, the, the future of treatment has to go. Do you feel like, in your opinion, like the, the medical culture is becoming a more open and just in like at least accepting of like looking at things from a mental health standpoint because i feel like that was stuff that was brushed under the rug a lot uh, throughout you know history so you feel like it's at least starting to like move in the right direction or what kind of steps you know do healthcare professionals need to take to make sure that i mean i think as with everything my answer is going to be it depends you know it depends on the individual professional i know for instance from Having worked in D.C., where for a long time the only requirement for being an addiction counselor was experience with recovery uh, to get certified as an addiction counselor, a lot of people are very defensive and they're still sort of stuck in that sort of moral model. And I feel like even in primary care, it really depends on the person. I know a lot of doctors with all the restrictions on opioid prescriptions are paranoid that their patients may be pill-seeking but we wouldn't react the same way if we thought that a person was seeking treatment for depression, right? Even though there's a lot of stigma towards mental illness, there's even more stigma towards addiction. But at the end of the day, I feel like if there was some way that we could move outside of our professional silos, I think, you know, we tend, it's like that old saying, if if you're only tool is a hammer, then pretty soon every problem begins to look like a nail. I feel like, you know, as an addiction counselor and a mental health professional, I'm always trying to talk to my patients about their mental health. And if they have a somatic concern, diabetes, heart disease, whatever, I always try to couch that in terms of their mental health versus a primary provider who maybe is going to approach it from the other direction. I think that the movement from health to wellness, sort mm-hmm. of like looking at the whole person, I really think that's the way to go. But again, it's hard because everybody is overworked and underpaid. And, you know, we, especially for primary providers, you don't get to spend that much time with your patient. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's, it would be the right way to go. Yeah. That's good. I like that overall wellness. I think that I, I definitely have moved more, especially after working with y'all, you know, and, and seeing some of the patients and stuff and seeing even from a pharmacotherapy standpoint, seeing these patients that, you know, I've seen patients that are depressed or have OCD or some of these other conditions and see them improve is like extremely rewarding to see like, cause it's something that unless you've gone through that, you can't really imagine the lifestyle and the, the internal like dilemma that these people are having to go through. So it's mm-hmm. crazy to see like how thankful a lot of them are when they are getting through some of these issues. Um, but yeah, anything else, man, as far as, uh, that you'd like to share, you've been thinking about lately or anything like that? 
No, I mean, I think I, I you know, pretty much said it all. I, I, I think, obviously, with everything, if more resources were available, you know, in my experience, there are people who enjoy using drugs. I never see them. I've never worked in one of those places where people are mandated by court. So most of the patients I see legitimately want to quit. It's just a question of what can we do to help you be safe and comfortable as we while we are working with you to give up the one thing that has ever made you feel safe and comfortable that's really the biggest challenge yeah that's oof. it's a tough that's one that's a tough sell it's a tough one so uh, do you know Vin, you mentioned the book earlier can you say that title again that we talked about um, oh yeah the one about uh, pleasure versus happiness yeah. the subtitle i don't remember the 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 full name I, but the subtitle was the hacking of the american mind okay um, and that's the one where he lays out the sort of d distinctions. Are there any good resources that you would recommend if somebody else wants more information yes. on this or wants to learn? Anybody who's interested in understanding and gaining a deeper understanding of addiction has got to read a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It's written by a guy named Gabor Mate. He is, he's all over YouTube. He's Canadian. He's a psychiatrist. Uh, the first name is spelled Gabor, like Jaja, G-A-B-O-R. The last name is spelled Mate, M-A-T-E, with the accent at the end. But you could probably just do a Google search on Gabor Mate, and he'll come up. Awesome. Any others you've seen recently that you can think of? If not, it's cool. I mean, no, put that's, you the spot. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that's, that's the two that I would recommend. Is that, uh, is that second one you mentioned, is that on Audible? Do you know? I'm Probably. I'm almost certain it's been out for a while. I'm gonna have to get yeah. it on Audible. Then that's my go-to for uh, book reading. I don't read a lot of actual stuff other than like the some of the new literature and stuff that comes out through you know medication you know, about you know pharmacotherapy therapy and whatnot. But yeah, as far as reading novels and like, reading actual <laughs> books, I haven't done that yeah, in a while. Not, I listen to them all. <laughs> I'm not gonna hate on you. I mean, I still read. I just read on my tablet, so I don't. I don't have a lot of physical. Do books you use the, the blue glasses to like block the blue light so you don't get the? No, I didn't those? even. I didn't even know that existed. Apparently, it uh, shows my age. They <laughs> apparently well, so it's ridiculous. That I made fun of that, like just joking around. But like, well, you know, don't read your iPad before bed because it'll, you know, easily restart your circadian rhythm and all. I made it in front of my class, and I was like, unless you want one of those ridiculous blue glasses, like or the glasses that block the blue light. And this one guy that I, I've also called out a couple times by accident, he like raises his hand, I wear those. It's <laughs> <laughs> like crap. Great. Uh, yeah, he's no. a good sport though. I have he a blue laughed. light filter. I just use that. It's probably a total placebo effect. But you, know, eh, you got to live in hope. Placebo effect is a very, very real thing. I feel like so. If, hey, if it makes you feel whatever, go for it. <laughs> I'm a big believer. Good deal, man. Well, I appreciate you doing this on a Saturday. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for having me. We'll have to. Uh, we'll do a follow up episode later on. Let's, Absolutely. Once you find some more patient cases and Absolutely. stuff, I have to bring up, I and mean, you can yeah. come back anytime. Would but, love to. Cool. All right, man. Thank you. And then thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you have any questions at all, shoot me an email. Um, it'll be in the show notes. And then you know, make sure you subscribe if you like the podcast. Check it out on YouTube if you want to see the video version. Um, follow us on Instagram, any of the other social media platforms. And um, we'll look forward to getting you next time. Thank you so much for the support. Bye.